Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Pat with the Cast Right Catholic Podcast. I started this with my best bud, John Karasinski, and we're two friends on a quest to become fully alive. We want to, as St. Paul says, take hold of the life that is truly life. And so we just want to invite you into our friendship so that together we can learn friendship with Christ and walking with him under the Father's blessing, embrace the complete joy of him who makes all things new. So with this podcast, I wanted to tie together some themes, ideas, and concepts that we've discussed in the last few podcasts. We've talked about what is the measure of your life? How do you measure your life? And that the true measure of a life is the degree to which it participates in love. The degree to which we participate in the life of the God who is love. We've talked about how the one thing necessary is to learn the voice of the Good Shepherd. We've talked about the story of the fall and the story of the resurrection. We've talked about covenant and Eucharist. And so how do all of these fit together? What binds them together and makes them cohere? I want to connect them under the umbrella of just one word. Healing. The Christian life is entirely 100% about healing. I think it was Pope Emeritus Benedict, who is the Pope before Pope Francis, who said something along the lines of, the gospel properly understood is about healing. We are broken. But how are we to understand our brokenness? What is this brokenness? Well, we we talked a couple podcasts ago about self-centeredness, that the real core and root of our brokenness is our selfishness, our self-love, our self-centeredness. And I think because we, we already have preconceived notions of what those words mean, I want to add self-seeking. That the way we see and experience the world is through the narrow lens of our self and how it impacts us, how everything impacts us. That in all things, on all levels of our person, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in subtle ways, we're seeking ourself in our purpose, our work, what we, we might have this thing that we want to do in the world, but we want to do it. It's not just that we want it to be done, it's that we want to be the one to get it done. It's actually kind of irks us to think about someone else getting to do it and us not getting to do it. Because even if they do it and it gets done, that was our work. That was what we were supposed to do. That was supposed to be our fulfillment, our self-maximization. That we want to be needed. That in our purpose, oftentimes we're seeking our own significance. In our senses, in our sensual pleasures, we're seeking our own satisfaction, our own fulfillment. We even become sort of attached to it. We grasp after things with our senses to give us pleasure. Uh, I even think, and maybe I'm a little bit of a weird guy, but I can remember times looking at a mountain range and it's so beautiful. And I'm thinking, I just wanna grab at the beauty. I just wanna swallow it, drink it down to its dregs. I want the beauty for myself, that I look at it and I just somehow want to bring it into myself because I think that the life of that beauty is going to fill me. 
And finally, I'll experience happiness. That even in the beauty of the natural world, sometimes what I'm seeking is myself. In our relationships, I know we, we talked about a couple of these in, um, in one of our podcasts recently, but so often we use each other as mirrors. That there is some idea of myself that I want to make myself to be. And so when I look into another's eyes, I'm not seeing them or seeking them, but I'm trying to gauge how successful I have been at making myself what I wish to be. That when I'm looking at them, I'm really wondering how they see me. That in the relationship, I'm seeking some sort of affirmation of my own ability to create the identity, the person that I want to be. That we want people to fit into our lives the way we imagine our lives, that we have this idea of how our lives are supposed to go, what they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to look, and we need people to fit into them in the right way. We need to fit into the place that we have for them. And sometimes we even pin people down to a particular reputation that we assume we know who people are. We assume that our experience of them is who they really are, that our experience of their actions, that what we think about them, that how we feel about them, how we remember them is who they really are. Think of Jesus of Nazareth, and he's trying to mature into his full identity as the son of God and the savior of the world. And what do all those people from his hometown say? Aren't you just the carpenter's son? We pin people down because we assume that our experience of them is who they really are. And we're not prepared for them to shatter our own expectations. That the truth is, we actually take a little bit of pleasure in gossip to hear about something scandalous that someone did gives us just a little bit of pleasure to listen to. That even some part of us sometimes delights just a little bit in some of the struggles that those around us might have because it makes us feel a a little bit better about our own struggles, or it makes us feel a little bit better about our own successes. Though the truth is, we have a really hard time rejoicing with the rejoicing because the success that they have, we worry we're not gonna have for ourselves, that their child's crawling and ours isn't yet, and we wonder what we're doing wrong, that they got the job that we wanted, that they got their promotion, that they were able to buy the house, that they were able to go on this great vacation, and we wonder if we're just missing out in our own life. And so we want to be happy, but we can't really. And so instead, we feel a little bit of contempt or envy. And sometimes people are just inconveniences to us. They interrupt how we want our day to go, how we want our life to go, because suddenly we have to account for their wants and their needs. We have to account for the fact that they have bad days, that they have ups and downs, and at times that can be really inconvenient to us because we really wanted to do X, but now we've got to replan or reroute to account for them. And the truth is we hardly ever really listen to people, really try to understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're going through, that we might hear the priest at Mass give a homily, and it wasn't said the way we think it should be said, that 
we critique and we criticize and we don't like the music and we don't like the way those people were at mass two pews ahead of us because they seem so judgmental. And yet we never really wonder what was that priest's experience in prayer that led them to say it that way today? What is going on in their heart and their mind? What is God doing in their life that they're trying to share with me? Instead, we just see it through the lens of our own experiences, of our own feelings and our own thoughts. And on top of it all, we have these difficult memories, these broken memories, traumatic things that have happened to us that someone said to us or someone did to us. And it could have been a parent, a coach, a teacher, someone we were in a relationship with. And these traumatic memories that wound us so deeply tell us false narratives about our lives. And we get trapped inside them, believing these lies and caught up in these fears that these horrible memories have haunted us with. And that's the truth that at the root of self-seeking, as we've said in some recent podcasts, at the root of this self-seeking is always fear. A fear of our own insignificance, a fear of failing to have an impact, a fear of failing to meet expectations, a fear of failing to be what we want to be, a fear of being alone, a fear of being pitiful, a fear of being pitied by people, a fear of being unloved, of being even worse, unlovable. And so these fears drive us. And in everything as a result, we end up constantly seeking ourselves, grasping for life. And we want, amidst all of it, so badly to love. And yet we can't get beyond ourselves. If any of that was at all convicting, that's a good thing. We have to see all of these things as the residue of the fall. We have to see it as the way the darkness lurks and lurches in the shadows of our life, waiting for the light that in complete tenderness overcomes our brokenness. But we can't be too hard on ourselves as a result. In Luke chapter 5, Peter and Jesus go out on uh, Peter's boat. And in this deep, profound encounter with Christ, Peter realizes something about himself. He's convicted to his core. So he falls to his knees and he says, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And I thank God that neither Peter nor Jesus listened to the voice of Peter's flesh in that moment. And instead, the voice of the good shepherd broke through and didn't say, I'm going to get away from you. And instead said, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is not how the story ends. The story does not end with our brokenness. It doesn't end with our selfishness, our inability to overcome selfish love for an unselfish love. Instead, commences the story of healing, which is what we've called the story of the resurrection. And so why? But why? Why do... We have this brokenness. Why are we this way? And we told the story of the fall a couple of podcasts ago, but I want to I phrase it in a slightly different way. If you just bear with me two minutes of some theology. 
So humanity, we are soul and body. That's what we are. We're embodied souls, ensouled bodies, however you want to say it. That's what we are. And, and you might hear it called man's, humanity's hypostasis. And it just means our substance, our nature. It's what we are. We're a body and a soul. But before the fall, our soul was meant to receive life from grace. That we were meant to receive life from God. And that life was going to be communicated from the soul to the body. But what happens after the fall is our soul is severed from that grace, severed from that divine life source. And as a result, our soul starts gasping. The spirit, which is the breath of God, is stripped from the soul. And so the soul gasps for breath and grasps that life from the body. Instead of receiving life from God, the soul grasps and sucks the body dry and sucks the senses dry, constantly seeking a life where it cannot be found. It's like this river was running through us from God through our soul into our body and the river ran dry. And instead of walking upstream towards the source, we walk downstream farther and farther away from the source into a dry desert where we gnaw and hammer at the broken, dry ground. It's like in John chapter 4, the noon of day, the Samaritan woman at the noon of day, the hottest time of the day, goes out and she dips a bucket into the dry, broken fractures of the ground beneath her feet, seeking just a drop of water to quench her thirst, broken relationships and shame surrounding her life, forming the, the history and the past and the context of her life at that point in time. And she's seeking just a drop of water, something to help her get through the day, to help her get through this life with just a little bit more comfort and a little bit more peace of mind. And at this point in time, Christ breaks into that space. He meets her there. And he says, if you but knew the gift of God. In John 17, Christ says that we are the Father's gift to him. That humanity is the Father's gift to the Son. And the Son is the Father's gift to us. That the complete and comprehensive response of God to the fall is Jesus Christ. And so we said we're soul and body. Well, Christ is soul, is body, soul, and divinity. He's body, blood, soul, and divinity, whereas we're body, blood, soul. That's what you'll hear in theology is the, the hypostatic union of Christ. He's fully man and fully God. He's body and soul, and he's divinity. That's who and what he is. And so in Christ the humanity that's broken away from the divine life source is reunited to it in Christ. In Christ, our humanity is assumed and reattached, regrafted to the life of God. And so in Christ, we, all of us, are already whole, holy, and healed. It's why the Eucharist is so important. We talk about the, we say the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. 
And it's the covenant because God's promise to us is healing. What he promises us in the covenant that Christ makes is complete and total healing. And then he seals that promise of our healing in his son's body. That in the body, blood, soul, and divinity is sealed the promise of our redemption, of our healing. And so here we are given to each other, us to Christ and Christ to us. Us, the broken, him, the healer, united in this covenant, sealed in his body. And so, I, um, but it's a story. I think that's one of the amazing parts about it is a story. It's not all at once this healing occurs, but it unfolds, unravels, and that is the essential drama of our lives. The essential drama is that light slowly emerging and swallowing the darkness of our souls through Christ being regrafted to the divine life so that we receive life from him and we can stop grasping at the body. We don't have to be self-seeking anymore, but we can be Christ-seeking. I read about this painting um, a couple weeks ago and it's called the Salvador Mundi. And I think it was by Da Vinci. And Salvador Mundi means savior of the world. And um, I think in 2017 it was this painting, and I don't know if it was lost or what happened to it, and it was refound, but it was sold in an auction. And it sold for $450.3 million, which is outrageous. But a guy literally spent almost half a billion dollars to buy this painting. And I know at the time, it it was the most money that had ever been spent on a painting, which is probably not surprising. I don't know if it's been eclipsed since then, but that's really hard to believe. Nevertheless, when I was reading about this, I actually saw something in it of a sort of snapshot of my own life. And I do not have... $450 million that I'm taking donations. But what I mean is, it was so interesting to me that this guy would pay so much money for the face of Christ, for for a painting of Christ. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it occurred to me that most likely, or there's a high probability that having this painting is is a status symbol. That it's a sign of wealth and power and money. And so this guy literally wanted to buy a picture of Jesus, potentially, to buy a picture of Jesus to show the world that he has wealth and power and status and money, which just seemed so ironic to me. And yet at the same time, I couldn't get past the fact that he'd spent $450 million for the face of Christ to hang continuously in his home. And that's how I feel so often that even in the Christian life, even in the Christian journey, I'm self-seeking, that I want to do these great things for the church or for others, that I want to be a great Christian, be on this great mission. I want to accomplish these great things. I want to do them for God. But what I'm really seeking in those things is my own self, is my own significance that I'm still seeking my own fulfillment, my own plans, 
even in the Christian life. In John chapter 6, so well, in John chapter 5, Christ multiplies the loaves and the fish and feeds thousands of people. And then in John 6, it says that you know, he crossed the Sea of Galilee and the people went after him. And scripture says they were seeking Christ. But when they find him, Christ says to them, you sought me because you had the loaves. You ate the loaves and you had your fill. Seek instead the food that is of eternal life. That even, even these people who had had this tremendous encounter with the power of Christ continued to pursue him in a self-seeking way and that I do that so much. But that that's a part of the story is the tug of war, the gradual conversion. Every second of every day is like a seed that's been sown. And I'm, a, I'm hoping that Christ is gonna convert that second into, from my brokenness, my self-seeking, into Christ-seeking. That it's gonna, you know, I'm gonna sell everything, give everything I have so that Christ would hang continuously in me. But that in the midst of that, there's going to be this mixture of self-seeking and Christ-seeking until finally, permanently, the image of Christ hangs within me. Because sometimes, sometimes I want it so that people will see me and think, oh, he's holy. <laughs> Look, he's got the image of Christ hanging in him. He looks so much like Christ. He's so holy. And I, I want to be holy so that people will think that about me. I'm self-seeking. And at the same time, there is an authentic, pure desire to simply have the image of Christ hanging continuously in the house, the temple of my person. And that is, that is the Christian journey, is the gradual conversion of us over time in the minutest seconds of each day allowing our self-seeking to become an authentic Christ-seeking. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, when he first meets his apostles, and his first disciples, he asks them, what are you looking for? And they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And that's how the journey commences. And so it's really a journey to a complete Christ-centeredness. As our self-seeking and our self-centeredness is gradually displaced, the healing that occurs is that we're no longer self-seeking and self-centered, but Christ-centered. That it's no longer the self as the narrow lens through which we see and experience the world and others and God and ourselves, but it's Christ becomes the lens. Through Christ, we see and experience others, the world, and God the Father. And so this healing that is to become Christ-centered, which is the, the basic healing, the most fundamental healing that occurs in a Christian life. What it really results in is that we see in a new way. In Ephesians chapter one, St. Paul says, I pray that you would grow in knowledge and wisdom and that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, him who made light shine out of the darkness, made light shine in our hearts, that we would behold the knowledge of God, the glory of God, and the face of Jesus Christ. 
that when we're Christ-centered and we're no longer grasping, sucking life from our body and from our senses, we're no longer self-seeking, the whole world and every person, everything takes on a completely new texture and glow that the world and others in God look completely different when we see and experience them through Jesus Christ in a Christ-centered life. That our neighbor is no longer the inconvenience or the mirror or the gossip or needing to fit into our life, but they're a mystery. That's when we want to know they're an opportunity to love. They're someone who reveals to us uniquely the face of Christ. That God is a good father who tends and tenderly cares for us. And that we are works in progress, being transformed into manifestations, icons, living witnesses of the love of God. But then the question is, how do we actually do this? How do we actually allow the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity to be the consummation of our lives? How do we actually allow it to be that's The Eucharist is the source as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's the source of all our healing. How do we allow it to also be the summit of our lives? So that when we receive the Eucharist, we're truly allowing all of ourselves to be reunited. If we're going to allow that to happen, we have to allow him into every second of every day. If we're going to actually, when we go to Mass and receive the Eucharist, become, as it says in Hebrews, partakers in Christ. Then we have to, as the rest of the verse says, embrace the new reality of who we are in day-to-day living. So how do we practically do that? Well, that's what we want to talk about in the next two podcasts. And so thanks for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate you listening. I'm praying for you and thinking about you. And as always, if you have questions, comments, criticisms, or things you want to hear more about or clarified, feel free to email us, castrightcatholic at gmail.com. Thanks again, guys. And until next time, this has been the Cast Right Catholic Podcast.